Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what is the future of communication interfaces? So by communication, we're talking about person-to-person communication, but also, I guess, what is could be called communication with your computer directly. I think a fun place to start with this is to talk about the uh, well-known author David Foster Wallace, mm-hmm. who wrote a book in 1996 that you might have heard of. It's considered somewhat a modern classic Yeah, called Infinite Jest. Yes. And uh, this book was written in 1996, but was at the time about the near future from then. Right. And he wrote a section of that book that's very funny that is describing video phone technology. Right. And the, us all getting the video phones that at Basically, people... Basically, it's the failure of the video it's phone. It's the failure of the video it, phone. It's he, sort of, he, yeah. The story of the failure of the video phone as a technology, and he, he, he takes it through. It's a really brilliant little section of this story where he uh, imagines everyone getting them and starting to use them, and then very quickly uh, realizing that uh, it, it was a hassle to look nice for the video phone. So they'd started to try to game that a little bit. Right. Well, let, let me uh, actually like read a, a short bit of it. Video callers now found they had to compose the same sort of earnest, slightly over-intense listeners' expressions they had to compose for in-person exchanges. Those callers who, out of unconscious habit, succumbed to fugue-like doodling or pants crease adjustment now came off looking rude, absent-minded, or childishly self-absorbed. Callers who even more unconsciously blemish-scanned or nostril-explored looked up to find horrified expressions on the video faces at the other end, all of which resulted in videophonic stress. As Ted was alluding to, that he, that he goes on to talk about you know making sure your hair looks nice, and, right. and eventually it gets to such Soon an extreme... Soon people start getting yeah. um, pictures taken of them uh, looking nice, and they start sticking printed-out cards in front of the video phone, so... He basically presupposed the avatar in that section. It progresses further to where the cards are not even pictures of them anymore. They're sort of idealized forms. There's there's a whole progression of technological defeaters to the fundamental problem of video phone, which is that it takes a lot of attention and it also puts a lot of attention on you. And uh, which is why this is an interesting place to start because right. if you look at old science fiction, it's full of video phones, right? It's full of people talking to each other on screens as if obviously what we would want to do in the future is we want to take the phone and just add more to it. Just add picture and uh, Right, and they color. demoed a video phone uh, at the World's Fair in like the 60s, right? So, I mean, they've had video phone technology since the time of a lot of that science fiction. It's never really gotten seriously adopted. Well, because culturally, it's not as desirable to have that as you would think. And, and I think David Foster Wallace kind of although he did it in a really absurdist fashion, I think intentionally so, kind of exposed how there's these cultural forces that would prevent us from adopting this interface that on the surface seems like it's better. Right, it seems like it's better. It's definitely technologically harder to do, but it's not actually more what people want. And that's what's so brilliant about that is how he shows that people basically don't want it and they end up turning it back into the old technology that they liked better. And, and I think if you look at our world and what's really happened relatively recently with cell phone front-facing cameras, we have had video phone technology disseminated to virtually everyone. And what you see is that... People text, right? People basically don't use it. There are a few use cases that it's tremendously useful for. And so for 
lovers who are away from each other or for grandparents and babies. It's tremendously, tremendously useful, and those people uh, use it a lot. But what's been the major growth in communications uh, is not video calls. It's like you were saying, it's texts. Uh, And texting has actually replaced regular phone calls for a lot of people. For a lot of people, especially for young people. For a lot of cases. And so what we've actually done is you could be seen as as going backwards, at least in terms of the resolution of the communication. And I, this is something that, I, again, people who are writing science fiction in the 60s, I, I can't imagine them ever imagining that we would get rid of real-time voice and instead replace it with a medium like letters, basically. Right. Well, and it's so funny that, uh, you know, before there was telephone service everywhere, there was uh, teletype, there was... Um you know, uh, Morse code, sure, which allowed you to send text messages, actually very similar to the ones we send on our phones now in terms of their limitations. And it was seen as the old technology, but there was no attempt, like when they first started making cellular phones, there was no attempt to make a machine whose sole purpose was to be a cellular text machine. But now... Uh, now that everybody has a machine that does both, it, you look at the actual usage and you see that people are generating a lot more text uh, than you would expect, and, and audio call volume is not nearly as high. I imagine that the reason is is that people prefer the sort of more low attention medium. I mean, I think you don't... A text right, message... that's the big difference between a text message and an audio call. Right. And, uh, and between an audio call and a video call is the amount of attention both it requires of you and that it puts on you. And in both cases... The text uh, message is the lowest attention medium, and it's getting adopted because, of course, people want to communicate while they're doing other things. They want to communicate with more people. They want to just do more with their time, and yeah. that's what texting, it they saves They don't want to worry about their hair. They don't want to worry about whether they're out or at home. They don't want to worry about uh, whether they're talking to another person or not. Those things, they make communication harder and worse, so they don't want to do those things. Well, and, and I think, you know, I've heard a lot of people, you know, anguish about the fact that, you know, nobody calls anybody anymore and isn't this terrible. And the way I feel is I always just kind of hated phone calls. I mean, you know, there are times when a phone call is, is simply the best way to have a conversation and to get something across. But I think texting and how convenient it is has exposed a lot of the downsides to phone calls, which are that, you know, you're Well, phone calls are clearly superior to video calls. Yes. Because they're still low attention. You can still walk down the street while you have a phone call. I guess you can drive your car while you have a phone call, though. But the fact that you have to respond then, right? That's part of the problem is like you're driving. The real time element of it is stressful. And I know that there's online uh, uh, chat, you know, which is just like text messages, but has that expectation of simultaneity and is, you know, slightly higher attention medium than than the, the SMS, where you don't have any confirmation that the other person's seen it you don't even know if they're looking at their phone or not so there's a real expectation you might not get a response right away that's i think part of the appeal of the text message is that it's this extremely low medium you can, uh, that's uh, low speed and low uh, tension on you as well. Fortunately, nobody ever has to have these awful arguments in their house anymore. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it was even worse with landlines where it's like, you get the phone. No, you get the phone. And it's just like, it's like all of a sudden the phone's ringing and like the entire house is, has to respond. And like those days are long behind us because that was annoying, I think. I mean, there are people still have a landline in their house yeah. and I, they, that scene still exists in their house, but not in mine. Yeah. And that's a choice you can now make to not ever have to deal with that again. Um, So anyways, what does this tell us? You know, obviously it tells us that prediction is often wrong uh, and that we don't always just want the better, higher resolution version of communication, that there's these other factors, one of which is attention, that are really important. And so I want to apply this uh, to some of the other 
sci-fi predictions that we've seen and see if we can reason through how likely some of these things are, right? So Right. So a lot of sci-fi movies feature some kind of advanced computer program, AI, and that makes sense because we'll probably have some kind of advanced AI in the future. Uh, but the way that people interface with that computer, uh, we want to sort of call into question. A lot of times there are these sort of anthropomorphized humanoid personalities, either literally embodied in a robot or uh, more like a HAL 9000 voice that talks to you or uh, like Scarlett Johansson in her. Um, yeah, these conscious assistants that are basically people. Your interface now has become this thing that's vaguely human-like. And uh, yeah. I want to push back against that human-like prediction. Human-like to some degree, yeah. yeah. You know, in the movie Her, you know, he obviously he ends up dating his assistant. So I, I could see why you might want... Uh, a human-like uh, love interest, but in terms of just, you know, being your operating system right. and getting your, communicating with your computer yeah. uh, as an interface, it seems like, why would you really want that? Because that to me is, again, that's moving in that higher intention, attention direction where now you have to... I don't really want to care about whether my computer likes me back. Let's put it if that If your way. computer makes a joke, do you, are you supposed to laugh? <laughs> do you have to like say please when you want it to open a new window for you? I mean, you don't really want it to feel like yeah. a person, I don't think. No, if you didn't run those backups that it asked you to do, is it going to be mad? Yeah, I yeah. mean, it just no. makes me think of the Microsoft Paperclip, which... Uh, right. My, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a long line of failed software products that have tried to make computers more human-like. And if, of course, a lot of that has to do with the technological limitations. But Microsoft's Clippy, uh, Microsoft's Bob, um, also, <laughs> also. I forgot about that one. Uh, I mean, honestly, I would put Apple Siri in this category. I know lots of people who love their iPhones. iPhones seem to be wonderful things, but I don't know anybody who actually uses that Siri. That seems to just not work at all. The things that it does are the same things that just the regular old search bar does. And the, the fact that it tells you to you is only useful if you're driving a car, as far as I can tell. You know. Right. Well, this, I think, so, quickly moves into voice activation, which right, is like... Right, sure. So we should yeah. just say that auditory interfaces are going to grow and... and and auditory interfaces are definitely something that people are going to want in certain situations, but they're not going to be I don't anthropomorphized. Think be, and I don't, yes, they definitely won't be anthropomorphized. They won't have a personality behind them. Uh, but I, I don't know if I see voice activation. I see it growing for sure as it gets better. I don't know if I see it becoming dominant because, again, that's another thing that you will see in some visions of the future is that everything is voice activated all the time, voice activated this. And I think right. that there are times when voice activate, like that, I get annoyed. That, that's when, a cinematic device though, right? I mean, it's just so much more cinematic to have the actor saying words than pressing maybe. buttons. But realistically, we like pressing buttons uh, a lot. And, and well, there's just, lots yeah. of times when that's just more efficient. Um, than, right, when I'm on the helpline, you know, like trying to get through to somebody and it says like, if you need help with paying your bill, say, Bill. I would much rather push one for Bill. Like, I don't know if I'm the only person. Like, I mean, maybe they've done studies and people prefer to say the word and that's why. That's interesting. They you know, that I think out. that's just a middle step between you just saying, I need help with my bill and it knowing what you said, which. Uh, that might be nicer. Which is, I think, where they're going with it. I mean, and, and there's, they're starting to get there. That's It's not quite there, but they get better every year, those automated systems. But if it's the difference between just saying a word and pushing a button and I'm not driving my car. I mean, again. There are situations where you need to be hands-free, and, and driving the car is the only one that I typically find myself in. I mean, I Right. Well, and of course, this might be defeated by self-driving cars, but assuming that we're still driving our own cars, you're going to want to have access to information 
auditorily and you're going to want to be able to do something auditory to get that information. I think coming up with non-goofy auditory interfaces is actually like a challenging engineering problem that's going to get a lot of thought put into it. I don't know what the solution is going to be. I think it'll be some combination of things that are natural language processing, not that you are addressing the computer as if it's a human, but just that you're using the natural way that you speak to let it know what's going on. And then also a combination of that with some maybe carefully designed ways to tell the car important things in a shorthand that are hopefully not, you know, don't make you feel too self-conscious. Because I I don't want to, personally, I don't want to walk down the street talking to my cell phone Uh, Because I think I'd look crazy to other humans. Well, okay, there's that problem. I mean, (laughs) okay, there's there's a few problems, I think, with voice activation as like a dominant way of communicating with your computer. Right. First of all, it's slower, right? To say a sentence rather than select a context-sensitive option. This is the thing I think, you know, the interfaces are going to have the ability to be very context-sensitive and just put in front of you just the options that you need. Mm -hmm. So in a situation where it's wide open, the things that you could possibly do, your ability to just speak what you want is going to be helpful. But in a situation where a very small uh, menu of options would even be relevant to your situation and the computer can appropriately guess the context, it's Mm -hmm. always going to be faster to just point at option A or, you know, use whatever gesture to to choose like option A or over option B, I think. Mm -hmm. Except in those situations where you're, operating heavy machinery such as a car <laughs> right uh, and and in those cases obviously it would be a danger to maybe use your hand as a gesture um, right right so some combination of hands uh, eye tracking and right and I think some natural language learning oh, where eye tracking's hands free so that again I think right. could replace it could replace a lot of it a lot of this stuff but it, yeah again like assuming we're still driving around cars which is maybe a faulty assumption there uh, you probably don't want to be like looking off to the side either to mess with your computer. So, you know, that's, um, those, those will both work. And I think some amount of natural language understanding where basically if you're saying something anyway, if it's natural for you to say something, the computer understands it and can again, get, get context from it. I think, uh, what people will want, but, uh, I, I don't see there being much demand for a personal assistant who's main function is to get stuff done for you, but who also carries a human personality. I do think there'll be demand for software that has a human-like personality just for loneliness or... Uh, right, but it won't be your assistant. It will be your friend. It won't your be your friend. assistant. It, it will your... be your digital friend. Yes, yeah. exactly. It will be a piece of software uh, that, you know, in the typical science fiction movie, it will be a different piece of software than the one that you ask for your email. But I want to come back to something else that you said earlier, okay. which was you mentioned the problem of, again, talking, do, doing the voice commands in public makes you look crazy. Or, I mean, it wouldn't make you look crazy if everybody has this technology and understands what you're doing. But it's, it's you know, you're you're sharing your business with everybody. It's a uh, it's not a great privacy feature to have to speak right, your right. commands, right? So, well, right. Well, especially in a world where everybody's got, you know, um, com- recording equipment on them all the time, it would be a serious privacy issue if all of your computer commands were issued in <laughs> unencrypted airspace, <laughs> um, you know, via audio. And obviously, this is a world where there's really good natural language understanding, because else how would all of these technologies work? So somebody would be able to record you and transcribe you extremely easily. In the David Brin novel, uh, Existence, which is a science fiction novel, the solution to this problem is there's all these uh, sort of sub-vocal interfaces. I'm not sure exactly how this stuff works, but I guess there's proof of concept for it. Um, Right, right. Where you don't actually have to 
speak the commands that you want out loud. You can um, sort of say them in your throat or something, or even think them uh, at a certain point and, and uh, get what you want uh, from the machine. I'm not quite sure how that works, but obviously that would be a nice solution to this problem. Right. Well, as sensors get better, whether they can sense the inside of your throat or whether you can get um, you know machines in your in your brain or whatever, uh, you might be able to uh, basically have a direct neural uh, computer interface where your brain could start addressing your computer as if it were a extension of itself. That to me makes sense and, and various versions of sort of like minimal context aware uh, interfaces uh, make sense to me. Uh, and, and it even makes sense that you might have a virtual girlfriend that you, you know, uh, get for the purpose of, of uh, being um, uh, not lonely. Uh, but uh, I don't think that they will make um, assistants that are like, uh, like Scarlett Johansson and her. I think we're in agreement about that. Yeah. Uh, so the, the next uh, kind of interface that's on the horizon are, the, are these glasses, right? Are these augmented reality uh, glasses Right. Um, like the Google Glass is the project that people are most familiar with, but uh, uh, definitely other companies are working on this sort of thing. And uh, so there's that, and whether or not that will, I guess, catch on. Uh, I would say that long-term it will, although I don't know how fast that process will be. Right. I don't necessarily expect this version of that technology to get big, but um, it seems to me once they can put these in regular glasses that they uh, won't have an additional plastic part giving them away, uh, that they'll do very, very well. Uh, I know, like, I have to wear glasses anyway. If I could get a computer in here, I would do it in a second. I'm probably unlikely to wear a second special pair of glasses. Right. uh, With, like, a strange attachment unless it's very, very useful. Um, what well, do you have an opinion upon whether like culturally people will prefer, cause I want to contrast like two directions, right? You mm-hmm. have the screen, uh, you know, it goes on your face, right? With the glasses, which is so much closer than anything else that we've done in the past, right? This is a definitely a, a big difference. Um, yeah. and then next step, maybe it's contacts and the next step, maybe it's in your brain, right? right. So there's that direction. And then I think there's the more externalized communication interface, which right. we, are used to working with now, you know, your monitors and uh, pocket cell phones, but you could see that getting expanded to where we can project interfaces like holograms uh, that everybody can see. We can turn almost any surface into a screen so you're not, you know, bound as much to one location or one device. Right. I mean, I imagine obviously we're going to have some combination of both of those things, but do you have any I like opinion about which of those would be a more dominant direction, like what people right. would want I more? Right. I mean, I think there's a tremendous... Uh staying power in the uh, kind of hand size form factor, whether you want to call that the book form factor or the pocket watch form factor or the cell phone form factor, something that's, you know, external to you, external to you, you put away that you can hold in your hand is I think a tremendously versatile and has been around uh, as a form factor for various technologies for a really long time. So I anticipate that form factor will stick around. But what about like, you know, being I, able to make your, your coffee table a screen and being able to uh, right. show well, your friends whether, a movie by projecting on any wall? Right, that, right. That, whether you know. like handheld projectors and stuff are going to, you know, be technologies that become useful enough uh, in time to compete with, uh, say, um, head-mounted technologies is really hard for me to say. 
I suspect that the handheld projectors are not going to be good enough because it seems like the light conditions are just so varied that they'll have to work in that. Uh, so, so let's. Put, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about the that. projection stuff. I, uh, it's really hard to say. I'm. I'm definitely not an expert there. No, no, I'm not aware of how good that technology is either. But uh, I mean, there's multiple ways to get there. So the the projection sounds technically difficult, but then. Well, there's um, multiple just ways having, to make light, but, but I mean, just having have to... cheap, thin screens everywhere also doesn't sound as uh, right. A paint-on difficult. screen or something sounds maybe more realistic to me than uh, than really good projectors. And yeah, and if um, you know, with good wireless interconnect, you could just sort of point. Like I, I sort of imagine that people's main CPU is going to remain their cell phone or whatever we call that sort of hand-sized device that people Your carry Swiss around Army with them. Knife of, of technology. Right. Um, for a while. And I think how that thing connects to various screens, uh, whether those screens are on your face or on your wall or are just smaller, thinner, cheaper versions of traditional screens is really hard to predict. But I think no matter what, the result will be similar, which is that you'll be able to get your device wirelessly connected to pretty much any screen around pretty easily. And so people will be used to sharing screens uh, all the time, sort of as a normal social interaction. Right. I guess I'm wondering if there just be some some individual differences that appear in, in people who are really comfortable with having the devices, you know, first on their face and then maybe eventually even in their bodies and people who would just who'd rather, who maybe are no less uh, using of technology, but would rather sort of surround themselves with the technology as being external to them and not being literally in their body or part of their person. A lot of that has to do with how useful augmented reality ends up being. Because the only place that you have a real capability difference if you don't wear the computer on your face is on the overlays. And so if you have to hold a machine up to your eyes... Uh, in order to get your augmented reality overlays, it's that'll that'll affect the usability of those things um, from a privacy standpoint and also from the standpoint of convenience. So I think uh, it'll track how useful that stuff is. There might be people who uh, don't find augmented reality technology useful enough to want to adopt it, but I suspect it'll put some pressure. Well, I think there'll be pushback initially from people who just are uncomfortable merging that much with the technology at first. Oh. That's a big one, I think, for people is, sure. is, the, is sure. putting the cell phone on your face. is is uh, I mean, for some people, that's the most exciting thing in the world. And for some people, that's, that's very uh, frightening. <laughs> right. Well, certainly right now, there's a strong amount of pushback. If they ultimately turn out to be useful, I think they'll get adopted and the norms will change. And if they don't turn out to be that useful then they won't get adopted, as my opinion. So the last thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, whether or not people have some kind of preference. I, I, I haven't fully thought through this idea, but I'm thinking that people like some friction in their communication, um, which might, you know, again, explain why, you know, higher resolution, more information is not always what people are going to choose as their direction. And I think some of the sort of contemporary examples I would choose to discuss are things like Snapchat, right? Which is just basically taking the ability to send messages back and forth and then basically crippling it by saying you can't save anything, right? It's basically actually- You can't save anything and neither will we. It's like like actually removing features and then that's what makes it appealing to people. Or Twitter, I think of as the same way. I mean, Twitter is just like basically a constraint 
of 140 characters and by actually taking away features, you've created this network that a lot of people use. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, at the far end of, of communication technology, there's that sort of Ramez Nam vision of in the Nexus book of actually mind like mind, to mind communication through, uh, through nanobots in the bloodstream. And I'm so. thinking, okay, that seems like sort of the end goal for communication. It's complete a sharing of everything between two minds, but right. how in demand will that be? Because we, again, the friction is that prevents us from sharing everything. Privacy is a part of that, which uh, the, just the limitations that are we've always had in communication, I think we're going to actually find that we're attached to some of those and maybe we don't want to just wash those all away. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I, I, I can see two ways that this might turn out. I have no idea which one it is or maybe could be some combination. But I think on one hand, I can see that maybe people just don't have much, like you say, demand or desire for total communication. Another thing that might be, though, that might be driving this sort of desire for these um, self-limited communication media is the way that constraints promote creativity. Sure. And I think when you have to be creative in order to communicate, because, you know, if I want to tell you something, I got to write something down, start with that empty Twitter box or that empty email window, there's something about the limitation, I think, uh, or, or with Snapchat, there's something about the assurance that it will be deleted that uh, allows you... That's liberating. Yeah, exactly. That's a good answer, yeah. That, that makes allows sense. you either to be more creative or to be more uninhibited. And I think that's maybe the appeal of these services in today's unlimited communication world. And we might find that MindMeld is not subject to that problem because uh, when you're, uh, you know, rushing headlong into the other's mind, you don't have to think of anything to say <laughs> because instead, you know, they're experiencing the world through your synapses and you're experiencing the world through theirs. Right, and, I, and that's such an extreme so, place to go with this. But the reason I brought that up is because that uh, is, is, yeah, the most frictionless perfect high resolution communication that I can conceive of. Right. But I mean, let's, let's take it down a notch then and think about something like life logging and subscribing to someone's life log feed. So let's say I had a, com a computer camera mounted in my glasses right now and everything that I'm seeing was being recorded and simulcast to the internet. And if you decided you could follow my feed and, and watch what I see in real time, as well as going back and seeing my past, if you wanted to do that as well. That's a technology that's more plausible than MindMeld, but that's a little bit closer uh, communication than uh, what we're used to doing now, where I sit down and write you a, an, an email. As you pointed out earlier, like that does limit the creativity in a way. Like less creativity potentially is exercised, uh, or less uh, editorial right. control when you're just logging everything. Well, and indiscriminately. I'm I'm logging everything indiscriminately, and so okay, so maybe that changes me a little bit and I kind of always know I'm performing so I'm always sort of putting on a thing. Maybe you behave more creatively in that sense. Maybe. and uh, Maybe it's limiting and, and therefore stimulating in that sense. But you're right that I couldn't possibly write every second of my day. So it wouldn't be as composed as a tweet or something. Uh, you might find it less compelling. You might be more interested in my composed tweets because at least then I thought a little bit about, oh, this is worth putting out there. Or you might find that you like the sort of raw, real, uh, close to my experience nature of the, the life log feed. I think both are interesting and both will have adherence. Um, but I don't know which one like will win. Will be culturally. dominant. Yeah, yeah I, could, I couldn't tell you. 
But yeah, I mean, I think the the lesson that we've had uh, delivered by, I think, particularly texting and and the lack of video phone use is is essentially again this idea that uh, more and better uh, communication or what seems like it is not necessarily what we seem to want. Right. So, right. And well, so it's and, just you yeah. know I'm trying to apply that to this, but it, again, it's so hard to imagine. I mean, that's the limitations of being stuck in now is that we right well one one thing that's interesting about like the life locking example is that even though it's a more total sharing it actually is not very high attention in terms of how much attention it requires from me well because it's a passive because sharing passive. right because you're passive, assuming people exactly. log in and check into it and it sort of requires yeah. a lot of attention of the person watching in order to get something useful but it doesn't require a lot of my attention to do it so i think for a certain type of personality a sort of extroverted or exhibitionist personality uh, it might be extremely attractive. Now, what do you think of like if I could send you an experience, like a fully recorded experience? Oh, like Strange Days style. Well, as a message, because I think that's maybe more analogous, right? Because you're talking about just logging everything and having that online to be searched or whatever. But if I was just saying, uh, you asked me like, how was your vacation? And I'd say, well, <laughs> here's the coolest moment of my vacation. Right. Uh, where I was ziplining or something and right, I recorded right. it all. Right. Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, only a small cry from what's technologically possible now. You put your cell phone in your pocket and record it and, you know, uh, I think that's, uh, you know, I guess it, it'd be cool if the recording was high enough resolution that it included, you know, your... Uh, endocrine system and your feeling of fear and you know like uh, your sense of smell. Well, see, but that's a good example stuff. of where the high, you wouldn't want all that resolution. I think like the no, endocrine system would. is something you'd want to leave off. No, see, I think you would want that. You just want to maybe be able to dial down the intensity. You know? That's an interesting idea. I think uh, it. You know, it would be real valuable to people to be able to share experiences that But it way. would be high uh, attention demanding. So you wouldn't want to get those like sort of experience emails all the time, especially from people that you didn't necessarily no. care that much about. No, you would seek out probably um, very, you know, really unique experiences well, for something that intense. How well is like, is, is Vine doing these days? Because again, that's like sort of a social network, right. like where people are, that's like, Twitter, but it's, again, it's higher attention, I think. And I feel like I find it, you know, hard to use because, again, of the attention demands, right? Like, I can scroll through a Twitter feed right. in a crowded, noisy bar while I'm waiting for the bathroom, and I can't do that with these, like, six-second videos. Right, right. And um, so if it was experiences, it'd be even worse, right? Right. Well, yeah, uh, Vine is, is I think, tough. And, and the way that Instagram works now where it's got the videos mixed in with the pictures which i feel like are annoying it's it's very frustrating because i'll i'm flipping through pictures or so i think and then one of them starts moving on me talking to you and yeah sometimes that's (laughs) not what i was trying to do or not polite in the situation so i've been finding that that's annoying and a lot of our use expectation with mobile phones particularly is that they're going to be relatively low attention devices because you're on the you're on on the go almost. You're by on the go. They're yours personally. They're not shared with anyone else. So you kind of expect you're going to get whatever you're going to get pumped right into your face, and and that it's going to wait for you. Uh, obviously, they do play games and they play videos, and those things are relatively high attention. But I don't love to do either of those things on my phone. I, I prefer low attention things on the phone. So it may just be that to answer your earlier question about which wins, it may just be that everybody continues using phones for low attention things. And for those 
high attention, things that you want more deeply integrated into your life so that you can pay that attention to them without, you know, falling over, then you then you strap a computer to your face. And then you can get your augmented reality overlays and your context aware uh, information. So we're not really going to erode this divide between the sort Maybe of the mobile divide. and the in the stationary uh, interfaces. It Maybe seems not. Like. Maybe they just continue to be two different things. Because I feel like people seem yeah. to think that the trend is that the mobile is sort of swallowing everything. But I think this would be sort of a this would go against that theory. Right. Okay. So uh, you know we're asked more questions than we had conclusions this time, but I think definitely we're in agreement about the anthropomorphic interfaces. We don't want the glorified no more Microsoft clippies. paperclip. Yeah. No more clippies. Uh, design your AI to look like Google search results. That's what we want. We want... Uh, Transparent, clean, invisible technology that just works and that it doesn't try to, you know, yeah, make clean, us laugh. Yeah, minimal, <laughs> personality-less technology that gives us what we want at the top of the list. That's basically what we're looking for, and we think that's what humanity is looking for, so we, we recommend that if you're... And it uses as little attention as is necessary to, to get the That's right. Job get done. out of our way and let us get on with our lives because really that's the goal of all these technologies is to uh, get rid of annoyance and inefficiency and uh, drudgery and replace it with, um, you know, whatever interesting thing it is that we're, that we're trying to do. All right. Let's, uh, let's end there. Okay. See you next week. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.